Mr. Pop. Dark. When the little birds are nesting, and I listen to them too, there's two lonesome people in the whole wide world. That's me and the man in the moon. Hello, and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring fantasy flight games as Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. And I'm Ben. And today, we're going to talk about the final scenarios in The Circle Undone and give you our thoughts on this campaign as a whole. Right. I mean, just to get the most obvious joke in the world out of the way, The Circle is finally done. So now we can talk about it. (laughs) Hooray! The real circle was the, uh, the encounter cards we drew along the way. I don't know, the purple spaghetti monsters we fought along the way? I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll work on this. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, w- this is also after the Black Throne. Right, yeah, exactly. This is the after the Black Throne episode of our podcast, so here you go. <laughs> Guys, welcome to After the Black Throne, starring Dane, Dan, and Ben. Right, there you go. <laughs> Obligatory spoiler warning for The Circle Undone, and probably other campaigns that we'll compare it to. Uh, you've been warned. Yeah, pretty, pretty much everything. Yeah, pr- literally everything. We'll wave our hands uh, in front of the camera when we're done talking about spoilers, <laughs> so you guys know you can do that good. Yeah, so, something like that. And we, we're kind of following up on, so on earlier episodes of the podcast, we talked about the first uh, five scenarios, so there's only three left. So the the first one to talk about is Union and Dissolution, the, the sixth scenario, which came out a couple months ago. What did you guys think of Union and Dissolution? So this one was interesting. Um, we only got to do... One version of it, right? While we played together? Yeah, I think we've all... So we've all played the campaign at least twice. Some of you guys maybe have played it three times. I have not. But I think that um, you don't have kind of complete freedom in choosing which paths you get to take because sometimes it's dependent on whether you succeed or fail. So we tried to cover a lot of the a lot of the different paths, but we, we haven't seen all of them. Yeah, I played it once through solo and then we played it all together. And the one that we did all together was the version where... We ended up siding with the Coven. Yeah, in both versions of our play, like uh, one playthrough, we were like deceiving the Lodge the whole time, and then we betrayed them for Union Dissolution. Yeah, and the second one we just yeah. were on the Witches the whole time. But I don't think uh, there's that much of a difference between the two scenarios. It's just a couple of counter cards are different, and your like goal is slightly different. Like it's uh, lighting the Razors instead of unlighting them, or vice versa, which is the same functional mechanic. Right. Yeah. It's more story uh, for the most part, I think. Yeah, and the, that was kind of the main, the kind of hook for this scenario was you had to move around and light or unlight these braziers, which were very difficult tests that let you use two skills at once usually. So that was kind of part of it, and you could also spend clues to make those tests easier, so collecting clues was useful for that reason. Mm. It definitely, to me, it felt a lot uh, sort of like an echo of the first scenario, the witching hour, because at one point later during the scenario, there was sort of a circle structure to the location, sort of like in the witching hour. And um, also, at one point, you get split up. Each investigator goes to their own location, and you can't move to other people's areas. So each each person has to be kind of self-sufficient, and that was also something that was done in the Witching Hour as well. Yeah, I think that the progression of of the uh, thing was kind of cool, as it it takes place on an island, um, as I affectionately call the Island of Birds, not to be confused with the Island of Dogs by Wes Anderson. You kind of first start in the river where you kind of, you know, you you get your boat over to it, and then you have to unlight or unlight the first brazier before you can kind of move into the rest of the island. And then after that, you kind of tackle the remainder of the braziers, and finally... In the big climax, uh, you you go to the Geist Trap, which is you know where all the the locus of all the spirits and horrible things are happening. All the guy, everybody's there. Was there uh, was there anything else kind of special going on with this one? Was there any other kind of like hook? I I remember this being like just more or less kind of a standard ish Arkham scenario. It definitely had some cool stuff, but I, I don't think it really had as much of a radically different setup as some of these scenarios have had. Yeah, the main mechanic was the lighting and unlighting with the circle uh, action. Yeah. That, so that had a new thing where you combined multiple skills together to do a test, which was neat and is unique to the scenario, but it's not like a, a major change, like, oh, there's an extra act deck or oh, there's an extra encounter deck or like whatever, like some of the other scenarios. This this one mostly just featured lots of birds. It did have, based on your story choices, it had like slightly different like final acts. There was like two act threes and like four act fours or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and then at the very end, there's like another decision that you make that affects the last couple of scenarios in the game, right? Well, it's it's whether you, yeah, yeah. depending on you succeed or fail. If you succeed on the scenario, 
then whoever you're sided with wins and then something happens uh, to the leader of that that team if you lose the scenario the other side wins and their leader gets powered up so and it's the it's the name it's the union the disillusion you know um, it's the which becomes union there's also one where they just you just win right uh well yeah yeah definite spoilers for a specific <laughs> path but uh if you're like loyal to the brotherhood the entire time which we didn't play through but i scanned through to hopefully be able to confidently talk about it um if you're loyal to the brotherhood the whole time and you win in this scenario you win the campaign because you achieved your goals the brotherhood got their power <laughs> yeah yeah that's it so i went through it with ashcan solo and he ended up joining the uh very rich people in the silver twilight lodge uh they they took in this dirty old hobo and his mangy dog and uh we won the day <laughs> so <laughs> so that was oh, fun. so your solo playthrough you you won at this scenario it's like the fashion line in zoolander like the derelict it's like oh wow it's so cool to look like you're a homeless person wearing <laughs> like they're like wow this guy he's wearing the latest fashions yeah i didn't i didn't end up getting to this the end of the scenario yet but i'm I'm excited for when i do i'm hoping that that's the resolution that i'll get uh, i think you have to like get, get inducted into the order or something which i haven't read any of that spooky text yet in that interlude because we've never been inducted into the order there's definitely like two pages of it so we'll do that eventually well and speaking of uh people associated with the order and uh and also with the ending of this scenario we should mention that this was of course the dramatic moment where ben's preston deck tragically died due to uh <laughs> due to karen's oval and having one too many ancient evils at exactly the wrong time well i think we flipped over the we like put out the last brazier as, as the last action which is our against our number two rule of arkham which is never advance the act at the end of the turn <laughs> and then we got like whatever act we on like spawned some guys that had a doom on them and suddenly we went from having five turns to like one turn <laughs> and it was uh <laughs> i hope we don't draw any evils this round anyway yeah it was, it yeah. was rough. preston made made full use of that extra experience uh, it is dark horse death <laughs> for the listeners out there if you're looking for some tips uh definitely do not advance the act right at the end of a turn usually it's a bad idea unless you have to usually you want to try to do it at the beginning so you can react to it afterwards and certainly that was the case here yeah yeah do you want to move on to the next scenario yeah yeah i think uh yeah union disillusion was cool uh doesn't really stick out a whole lot but it was definitely fun um the next one was in the clutches of chaos aka as as some people are calling it arkham pandemic who are those some people <laughs> well I, some, I some people meaning exactly me. people on the <laughs> just, well yeah okay dane. Dane. <laughs> basically dane but it is it is apt though this is definitely uh i don't know if it, if, it, if it was inspired by these games or if it's just kind of a coincidence but if you've played games like pandemic or forbidden island they're forbidden whatever where you know it's like a, a co-op game where you have a, a series of locations and you have some kind of mechanic where some kind of bad stuff is consistently happening at various locations and you have to balance your resources between going around and sort of putting out small fires versus trying to actually achieve like a good ending that i mean that's really what all arkham is sort of like but this was like a, a very very much in line with that so there were a bunch of different locations i think seven or eight of them uh i guess eight probably right eight, yeah yeah, there were eight. And what would happen was each location would accumulate breaches, which are some kind of spooky thing happening, represented by a resource going on the location. And then if a, if a place gets up to three breaches and then it gets another breach, then it becomes an incursion, which basically puts a doom on that location. And if that happens to seven, if that happens seven times, you lose. And what's tricky is that when an incursion happens, it kind of spreads more breaches to adjacent locations. So you sort of have to move around and each location has an action or a, a something that you can do on it to reduce the number of breaches and sort of turn them into clues gradually. So you sort of need to have people moving around the map, getting rid of these breaches before they turn into incursions, or else you could just have like a chain reaction and you could just get enough doom to, to lose the scenario very fast. Yeah, I, at least in four player when we did it, uh, I think I liked that mechanic a lot because it... Gave everyone like a subtask that we, we felt like we were always under pressure to like keep everything under control. Right. But still like, it, you know, it was a little bit reasonable that we could do it. Uh, sometimes you need a little bit of luck. I think we got pretty lucky on our playthrough where we had uh, several times where like incursions could have gone off because we had three tokens on something, but we didn't draw that card. Yeah, the the first time we got kind of lucky and we ended up having no incursions aside from one that we uh, fortunate or fated. 
And then the second time we were a little bit less lucky. We did get a few incursions, but we still managed to win. But it, it definitely, so the main way that you get breaches is once each turn, you randomly draw some locations. And I think it's one plus number of players is the number of locations yeah. that get a breach added, right? But that's kind of predictable. Like, you know, no location is going to get two unless something gets an incursion. So you can kind of plan around it more or less, although it is random. But there's also some encounter cards that can do very nasty things and add a bunch suddenly. Like there's one which says if the location that you're at has fewer than three breaches, immediately add enough breaches until it's up at three. And then that's pretty scary. Yeah. So there's definitely stuff like that where you, you can you never feel completely safe, although you can definitely play around it a lot. Yeah, there's a couple couple like specific runs for like which version you're doing too. Like if you're doing the Silver Twilight version where they where they're winning and Carl Sanford to control the Senate or whatever it is. Uh, he um, <laughs> was elected emperor of the galactic uh, yeah. empire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, he, uh, there, there's like uh, cards that like will move the doom. If it will, it will cause breaches for based on how much doom is on like various cultists. And I think the witch version has like, witches that move around and like drop doom or, or sorry, drop breaches. Or uh, mm. you have to decide between like putting breaches in some place or like doing your incursion stuff. Yeah, or having some horrible thing happen. Yeah. The other mechanic is, like, as you close breaches, you, like, spawn clues on locations all around the map. So you have to run around to try to get all the clues in order to have enough to spawn. It, it spawns the boss either way. Right. And the bosses are they're slightly different in terms of how you deal with them, but uh, it's either Carl Sanford or um, um, Annette. Possessed Annette. I forget her last name, but Annette. Mason. Is it just Mason? <laughs> one thing that's kind of interesting about this is I think this is definitely one of the scenarios that is going to feel very differently if you play it with, say, four people versus solo, because you get you have the same number of locations in either case, but with four people, you're putting five breaches on the map each round. So that's like almost all the locations, five out of seven. But with one person, you're only putting two out. So I feel like probably if you're playing with four people, it's much more, you have to spend a lot more time putting out fires or else it's just going to go, it's going to chain and you're going to lose very quickly. Whereas if you only have one person, your ability to deal with the entire map is limited because you're only one person, but you kind of have more buffer time before things get that bad. Yeah, uh, I can agree there. That the other, problem, other part, though, is in solo, like because the map's so big, you have to kind of decide what side of the map you're going to hang out on and deal with because <laughs> you probably can't yeah. run across the whole map every turn because eventually you'll run out of... You'll run out of resources or trauma or damage or whatnot will build up. So yeah, yeah. I was playing it two player with my girlfriend, and uh, we're, we're doing like Ash Can Pete and Diana, who don't have too much movement abilities, and we ended up having to like focus on one side of the map mostly to stick together and try to control that. And it went out. Yeah. It was pretty good until we had uh, like six breaches happen at once. Uh, but it was fine. <laughs> it was the, it, the doom threshold is seven, so yeah. <laughs> um, we wow. still managed to pull it out. But yeah. It's definitely, I mean, this was, this is absolutely a scenario where having any type of thing that lets you move more like Pathfinder or Shortcut or Track Shoes is incredibly good. Those cards are really valuable here for sure. Yeah, which is surprising because it's, it's, I mean, in terms of like all of the other scenarios ever made, it's not nearly one of the biggest maps, you know what I mean? So like eight locations is kind of big, but most of them are kind of central in a way that you can get to most of them pretty easily. Whereas, you know, things like the Pallid Mask or, like, one of the Guardians of the Abyss things, for example, like, those maps are unbelievably frustrating to, like, move around in. But this one, like, each location is is important because you need to remove those breaches from them. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's also more about, yeah, like, you can never just, like, finish a location and never need to go back in this, right? Yeah. And also, I think it's yeah, exactly. part of the measure of what makes how big a, a, a scenario feels is like the diameter of it. Like what is the the two locations that are furthest apart from each other? How far apart are they? And in this case, you have two that are five movements apart. So that's, oh, right. e yeah. even though there's only eight, that's still very far. If you have like a three by three grid, then you also have, you know, the corners are like five or, or oh no, we're only four apart. So like that's feels smaller, even though there's more locations. Yeah. I mean, the remainder, like all the enemies weren't as bad. There were some kind of, big cultists and night gaunts but otherwise weren't a lot of bad enemies in there in terms of like having to take an entire turn off to murder a bunch of enemies at any point i think mostly because of the difficulty from the like having to jump from location to location was so brutal yeah i mean the the enemies maybe weren't too bad but it was more um i think just dealing with the dealing with the breaches really took on the role of like the kind of continuing threat you have to worry about 
along with some of the encounter cards that add to that. I mean, there were a couple of unique enemies that had victory on them that were like, depending on which version of the scenario you had, that were interesting enough, but they weren't like super scary like uh, the unique enemies in the next scenario. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I thought this one was really good, though. I just think um, it felt different to play than most other scenarios because of the, it was really focused on that breaches and incursions uh, system. But that was, I thought, very well balanced where whenever we were playing it, whether we were sort of having bad luck or good luck, as long as we were playing well and generally doing a good job strategizing, we never felt completely safe, but it felt like we could manage it well enough if we were really on our toes. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I think it also had uh, my favorite encounter card, at least name-wise, which was Chaos Manifest. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, was, that was a good one. Yeah, uh, yeah, Chaos Manifest. And that's, that's one of the scarier Breach ones, too, right? Yeah, is that it one, is. It's like a will test, and then you put the amount of Breaches on your location that you failed, or random locations well, that you failed and, by. And we, this is probably something we're going to talk about later, but uh, the first time we played this scenario, I was playing as Joe Diamond, and I definitely did not want to draw Chaos Manifest. <laughs> and then the second time around, I was playing Agnes, and it was like, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I don't care. Like, give me that give me that Chaos Manifest, because I, I have five will on my card, plus extra stuff that's boosting it. So, yeah. yeah. Should we move on to the, the final scenario, though, before the Black Throne? Hooray! Hooray! Absolutely. This was, uh, so this one was, uh, it took place in space. Uh, everyone, everyone loves space. Space is really in this year because of the, uh, Apollo 50th anniversary. So good job, space. Um, Hooray. But anyway, so there were three, like, progressively larger maps. So you have to do sort of the same thing three times, but it gets a little bit more difficult each time, which is find your way through blank space or empty space represented by face down player cards by collecting clues and spending those clues to go through kind of like a location deck. So in that so sense, it definitely found deck. a cosmos deck. Yeah, Ooh. cosmos. Cosmos. <laughs> um, so in that sense, it definitely, it felt a little bit like uh, Depths of Yoth because we were sort of doing the same thing a few times and because it was about finding your way to a specific like end, end point in each uh, level. And it also felt a little bit like Lost in Time and Space because we were in space and all the locations were like... <laughs> you know, uh, infinite pillar of the void or like clouds of madness <laughs> or something. I don't think those are oblivion, actual locations, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Or the oblivion planet, you know, like yeah. that kind of stuff. So. <laughs> but yeah, what, what did you guys think about uh, before the black throne? This probably had the most terrifying, unique enemies in the cycle here or in the uh, campaign here. These purple spaghetti things that float, they float around in, in the space, the empty space that your cards create. Um, faster than than normally just jumping from location to location. In addition, like the encounter deck had some of the most brutal encounter cards so far. This and like normally the way that we play with wards and stuff is like you're usually trying to save it for an ancient evils or for an equivalent of something that's going to really massively impact the game, like kill somebody or make everyone lose a turn. Uh, in this case, there's everything in the encounter deck feels basically that bad. Like, as soon as you have a ward, you pretty much just ward something, because there's every turn there's something that needs to be warded. Yeah, exactly. Because there's, there's, so cultists keep popping up, and because of the way that the map is set up, the cultists have to spawn not in empty space, they have to spawn in uh, kind of unexplored locations. So it ends up being you get to a new level of space, uh, like you reach, you know, level two space or something like that, so and new, then new immediately <laughs> you have to draw encounter cards, and you end up putting a couple of cultists uh, pretty far away from you. And then the doom thresholds on these agendas are really pretty low, so you do not have a lot of time. Yeah. And meanwhile, there's a, there's there's kind of a, a guy just kind of hanging out there, causing problems. Uh, I'm sure you guys know who I'm talking about. Oh, is that Big Azazoth himself? Oh yeah, yeah. That's 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 who we're talking about. Don't say his name. You might wake him up. I don't think that's how it works. I think you're confusing multiple elder entities. No, well, no, the other one just noticed. I don't know. <laughs> Something something will come up. I guess it was ghosts. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> as as would any any huge space beast be woken up by ghosts. Oh yeah. But I mean, like, in addition to having this like absolutely massive entity like all around your periphery as you're walking through space, this was like the darkest campaign or, or uh, scenario. I think. Well, because we were out in space, or yeah, space space is very dark. <laughs> oh, no, definitely because people were were committing ritual suicide. Uh, this is rated M for mature, by the yeah, way. Yeah, rated M for mature. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you mean the the cultists that were just floating through space and then sacrificed yeah. themselves whenever the agenda flipped? <laughs> that was the other rough thing, right? Because every time, yeah, every time the agenda flips, if there's cultists with doom on them out there, 
they they just uh, they kill themselves and add the doom to Az- to Azazoth, which, which is what you really don't want at all. Like that's like yeah. bad. So and when you when you advance the act deck, not even the agenda deck, you draw a whole round of encounter cards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had to like shoo my cats out of the room because it was so mature. <laughs> and there's so so uh, <laughs> yeah, because your cats aren't seventeen. No, <laughs> but, they're not. <laughs> If your cats go to GameStop to try to buy a copy of the Fourth Black Throne, <laughs> uh, R.I.P. GameStop. Um, no, but anyway, but it's definitely uh, there. Just isn't a whole lot of time. Both times that we played this, we just barely managed to finish it before the last agenda flips. Because after the last agenda flips, the the game doesn't immediately end. It basically just things get worse because all the doom goes directly on Azathoth. And we both times just barely managed to get out before that, largely due to being kind of lucky in terms of where the good location was. But I think that even if we did go a couple of turns into the bad zone, we probably could have still done it. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. Both our playthroughs, we found, I think we found the last location on the first try, or maybe it was the second try on the first playthrough. I don't remember. Yeah. But the Black Throne. That definitely helped. That definitely helps a lot because that's a lot less clues you have to spend and a lot yeah. less movement and stuff. Because they're big locations. It, this is another one where having like fast movement is really is really helpful. Also, just for just for calibration purposes, so the two times we played it was once on standard and once once on standard with sort of mediocre characters and once on hard with like better decks. Yeah, with the newer characters. Then we came back with like with with reasonable yeah, we, very good investigators. Yeah, yeah, we brought the A team. Uh, I think that we didn't use too much of in the scenario was like all the uh, cosmos locations had uh, some type of movement ability on them. Oh yeah, yeah. I think we used the da- the one for the the dancing. I forget what it's called, but the the one that lets like, you move into it, you get to move again if you spend up a resource. There was one that you could like move around like a vehicle while people were on it by spending those yeah. resource tokens. That yeah. those all seemed cool, but I guess because there were, we got so few of those resource tokens, I think. We got like three or four. Yeah. And I don't know. I didn't like go through and check like what the maximum you can get is if you met all the conditions, but I feel like it was probably maybe six at most, but yeah, I believe it's five or six, but it definitely, it is nice. It does give you a little bit of extra flexibility. Yeah. I I guess I kind of wish you had, you were encouraged to use those a lot more. So maybe you weren't as limited on them, but you needed to use them more. Cause that'd been fun to like uh, mess around the map constantly. Um, like, move, like we, everyone's like everyone jump on these stairs and then we glide on those stairs up to this <laughs> location or whatever <laughs> or we got to teleport through this gate across the map yeah the elevator I feel like there might have been a little bit of missed potential there but also could have just been we got lucky so we didn't need to use them as much uh, so yeah 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 there was a big like focus on the locations right like all of the locations kind of had two spawn conditions so you could either spawn it to your right or you can attach it to the rightmost location or something like that so you always had options but in addition to that they had that thing where you could move them you know and and spend the resources and stuff like that i guess except for the super scary uh ones where you needed to end up to yeah they all had something going on with them and we mentioned this before but the encounter deck really was just very nasty there was ancient evils there were a couple of other things that could behave like ancient evils and the only real enemies were the purple spaghetti monsters who are just really, really nasty. They're like six, five, two, or something the like that. Dancers. Um, yeah, the 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 spaghetti dancers, <laughs> <laughs> which was fine. Like they were. It makes sense that if you go to space, you'd have to fight some really crazy space stuff. Like that makes sense. But it was just, uh, you know, it was a good, it was a good scenario for cards like Monster Slayer for just being able to like quickly deal with a extremely scary, nasty monster, uh, for sure. Yeah, it was kind of cool because um, the way that the the scenario played out is. You, you get to one of the super spooky places, get all the clues off of it, and then everybody needs to be on that location or else they get left behind. Very similar to Dep- Depths of Yoth, even in the, same, in the same vein that all of the enemies that are out at the time that you advance to the next level almost yeah. um, get shuffled in the top five cards, similar to the Pursuit Zone, right? right? So, so they're constantly going to be coming back. Like a little bit more dangerous than the pursuit zone was because you're definitely going to get them back yeah. very soon. Uh, yeah, the pursuit zone was a little more staggered as how they came yeah. back. Even if you advance the act deck, yeah. And, and I did also like that that thing Dane mentioned where everybody has to get to that location, sort of like depths of Yoth. That was a cool sort of like don't leave people behind kind of a kind of a moment. And of course, for the very last version of it, you don't have to get everybody on there. We thought, oh, cool, Did the people that don't make it to the Black Throne. Uh, just immediately die in space and uh, it doesn't actually happen that way but it would have definitely been funnier if that was what happened you know (laughs) something for a return to the circle undone yeah yeah, when we we return to the circle undone for sure (laughs) 
undoing too. <laughs> I mean, the one of the things that's really cool, I mean, in addition to these super dramatic, like, Citadel of Oblivion and things like that, the Black Throne was actually, uh, the art that was done on it was by famed Netrunner artist uh, Adam Doyle, or Adam S. Doyle. Shout who, out to Adam S. Doyle. Th- definitely a shout out to him as well. I think... I think it's a shout out to there's a um there's a movie out there called The Void mm. uh which kind of uh spoilers for The Void who haven't seen it yet definitely go see it. There's kind of like a part I, I a sequence in it where it, yeah, there's I, a, I also have not seen this movie. <laughs> well, there's a giant right, space we'll, truck. We'll cover our okay. Oh god damn it. Well, now now there's no point in me yeah. going to see The Void. Uh, <laughs> we, we didn't do a spoiler warning for movies, Dane. It was just for scenarios. Yeah. Come on. I guess we'll check that out. Did we mention that uh the theme of us moving around between all the space and stuff is we're riding on the back of horrible leathery monsters, and that's great. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, oh yeah. I didn't, I didn't notice this because I didn't look closely enough. But like the cosmos on the on the art on those cards is definitely like whatever whatever we're riding on. It's just some type <laughs> of winged, faceless, lots of tentacles monster, and there's like a flock of them that we're riding around on, which is great. All See, that's that's, that's the reason why they haven't made a bicycle player card yet, because for this scenario, it wouldn't make sense for you to be using a bicycle and also riding an icon. That's the only explanation. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of a cool tie-in with Guardians of the Abyss, too, because one of the resolutions you do get, a, a summon Nikon. And it's also a tie-in to the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadaf, which is, there was a lot of references to that yeah. on this one, for sure. I don't know if we were actually riding on Night Gaunts, because I think there's several different <laughs> winged creatures that exist in yeah. Lovecraft. Yeah, winged faceless creatures? Yeah. Oh, okay, but, well, well. But, you know, you know it's, all, it's all the same type of spooky thing. But yeah, there was a lot of uh, references to un- Unknown Kadath, as, as Dan just mentioned. A lot of references, which surprised me, because they announced Dream Eaters recently. Uh, I wasn't expecting so much Dream Quest in a non-Dream Eaters campaign. Yeah, although they did they did leave out our buddy uh, Nyarlathotep, uh, who maybe will make a... This is pure speculation, maybe will appear in Dream Eaters. Cause in the Dream, or did Because in the actual Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, that's a major character in the kind of final part of the story. One of the epilogue things sort of hints at there's no way I can say his name. Narlothotep. That's going to be a problem when I'm in charge of reading this wiki text. Sure is. One of the endings, like uh, if you don't have enough certain mementos, a certain combination of mementos and choosing your fate or whatever, you're forced, and you complete the act, you pick like resolution four, which is like, you have no idea what to do. You have to either sign the black book or not do that. <laughs> and if you sign it, then in the epilogue, like a spooky tall guy shows up and is like, it's time to pay your debt or whatever, which might be, might be that spooky elder one we just mentioned a few times. Yeah. maybe. <laughs> yeah. And then you wake up the next day and you find your newly purchased Toyota Corolla gone from your driveway. <laughs> no. What? <laughs> yeah. Overall, the scenario, I liked it. Even though we, I, I think we did, we got lucky and we like kind of beat it with a lot of time left. It didn't really feel like it the whole time. We kind of felt like we were always under pressure, which is kind of what you want. I think in a lot of these scenarios is you always want to don't want to feel like, Oh, I can take a turn to like draw cards or whatever. Yeah. Like, for the most yeah. part, you want to be like, oh, I always got something going on. I can't just dig through my deck. For yeah. Whatever. It definitely, it felt of a piece with the previous final scenarios that we've seen, like lost in time and space and dim Carcosa and depths of um, uh, shattered ions. Either the kind of like, cosmic weirdness and the weird like very strong enemies it definitely and like the weird locations it reminded me of those but it didn't feel too much like those like it kind of broke some new ground so i I thought it was cool yeah same so those are those are the final three scenarios so we've kind of we've kind of talked about each of them now so we kind of want to step back and maybe talk about the campaign as a whole and what we thought about it though first though so this is the i guess for the first time in this campaign we've actually gone through and reviewed the player cards in each pack as they've come out are there any player cards you guys can think of that we were wrong about, like that we initially either underrated or overrated, or just cards that as you played with them, uh, you ended up really forming a strong impression of? So uh, one card I think we talked about was uh, Mr. Rook, who's a seeker ally that lets you look at the top three, six, or nine cards in your deck and draw one, and, but if you draw weaknesses, you also have to resolve them. We thought he was like not that great, but... I played him in like a min deck recently, and he was kind of amazing. <laughs> um, I, see, I, I think I remember saying he was like pretty good, especially with Milan being nerfed. Yeah. Like 
he really is probably the kind of like basic good uh seeker ally now i mean just paying three to get a guy that can draw you three cards from you know you get to search quite a few cards to pick something at instant speed and in addition he has two health and two sanity that's just pretty good yeah and i mean addition i think the the fact that he can pull out whatever your weaknesses are is very good yeah uh, stipulation don't run him in doomed <laughs> yeah yeah there's definitely there's a few weaknesses where maybe you're really hoping to not draw them and it depends on the scenario it might be like oh i really this turn it would be absolutely terrible to find my weakness so i don't want to use it this turn depending on what investigator you're playing and what your basic weakness is you might be in one of those situations but most of the time you're actually really fine getting your weakness out of your deck without having to spend an action to draw it and 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 having some advance warning like oh, okay well i might draw my weakness so let me do this before i spend action so that if i draw it i can spend clicks to get rid of it you know yeah exactly it's it's such good foresight it, even if it's a scary one like amnesia or something like that you can basically like play it your whole hand and then see if you run into it or if it's uh you know lose all your resources or even like overzealous or something like yeah. that you can kind of call your guardian friend over to you know be there for you when you inevitably like draw a bunch of spaghetti monsters or something and and you don't even really need to play kind of not that great cards like enraptured to put more secrets on him or whatever three secrets is like a lot play him and use all three secrets and then let him soak damage and die and then play like another ally or him again yeah exactly play another copy yeah, I think I think he's very good. Yeah, yeah, de- de- definitely a really good card. Another card that uh, that we maybe wanted to talk about a little bit. So Intel reports definitely turned out to be better than I thought it would be. I think mostly just because the there's enough stuff that happens in this game that makes you not want to investigate, whether it's a locked door or a shrouded mist or whatever, or another encounter card like that, or whether it's an enemy on that location that you want to just leave there and you want to just try to get the clues remotely. Or whether it's a haunted location, which was a really big deal in some of these scenarios, just being able to get clues without having to investigate is really strong. And the flexibility of it, if you're playing a deck that has lots of money, Intel Report is just really one of the best ways to spend that money, I think. So definitely a good card. I didn't really get to play with the other service cards, uh, the, the one that evades stuff or the one that deals damage. So I don't know as much about those, but Intel Report, I think, is definitely a staple card for decks that can play it uh, for the future. Yeah. So all of that whole cycle of of those kind of fits into the newish archetype. I think when the Circle Undone came out, they had these big money archetype mm-hmm. kind of fulfilled. Um, before we saw Jenny, who had a lot of money, but not a complete lot to do with it other than funnel it into Streetwise or something. Now we have things like Money Talks. We have the, uh, it's like Curiosity, but for green. I forget what it's called. Cunning? Cunning. And it also, it became, it became tough too, because prior to the taboo list, one of the main sort of dumping grounds for a lot of money was streetwise because it was only a few XP. It was a permanent. It was pretty strong. If you were going to play a deck that had a lot of money, streetwise was a great card to use that money, but now it costs eight XP if you're using the taboo list. So you might still get it, but you sort of need other options as well because you might not be able to get it as early. Yeah. And I think it's a great, I mean, especially with Preston being, being like a prime candidate for using these kinds of things, like just getting four money a turn, dumping it into a, to an Intel report is great. You know, getting two clues for your allies at no risk of any tests is great. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Another card that I did want to talk about, uh, that, that I might've overrated <laughs> was track shoes. We had a big discussion about this in the pack that it was, uh, it came out in. And I think that I was mostly excited about it because of the fact that it was a an agility uh, icon that did not take up any slots. Mm. I mean, before this, we had to compare it to like trench coat and you know things like that, where this just gives you the static agility boost of Peter, but doesn't take up a slot and gives you the ability to to pseudo pathfinder every turn, right? Like, right, it, you have to do tests, but some, and sometimes it's bad, but not not that big of a deal. I think that maybe I overlooked the fact that. Some investigators can't really take it because their agility is not that great, because they won't reliably make that test. And the tokens, notably in the, in the Circle Undone, are pretty bad if you, if you get like the tablets or squids put into your bag. That all being said, I think its interaction specifically with a card that we're going to be talking about right now <laughs> is great, uh, which is Drawing Thin. Yeah, because oh, yeah. I mean, track, track Shoes... It it is a very good card, but really only for agility characters that can take it, which is a fairly short list. People like Wendy and Rita. Drawing Thin, on the other hand, uh, really is a pretty excellent card for just about everybody. 
But it's interesting because I think even when Drawing Thin came out, we said this card is amazing, but we kind of both over and underrated it in the sense that if you're not playing Circle Undone, it's not just amazing, it's like super amazing. It's a ridiculously <laughs> incredible card. We played Return to Dunwich recently, and I was playing a Wendy deck, and uh, who else had I think Ben was playing Bin with Drawing Thin as well. I was playing Bin with it. It was great. There were just so many turns. <laughs> we just like were turning all four Drawing Thin sideways every turn, just getting so much money, so many cards. It's ridiculous, right? But actually, in Circle Undone, the campaign that it's released as part of, almost every scenario either has Haunted on pretty much every location or really bad chaos tokens if you fail. So there will always be a tablet or something. It's like minus three. If you fail, something absolutely horrible happens. So you don't just want to take yeah. a test where you don't care about failing. So it's definitely an excellent card, but it weirdly isn't that great in Circle Undone. Yeah, I think I agree with that too. I think that it is absolutely fantastic. Probably too fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, but but it really, where, where it's really powerful, the two main ways to activate it are either if you have if you have two of them out, then it's great to just investigate, fail on purpose, and get either four resources or two cards. But you can't really do that if you're if failing is really bad. Or if there's a lot of encounter cards that you're, you're where you say, well, I'm going to fail this anyway. I don't care about making it harder, so I'll at least get some benefit from failing. But in Circle Undone, we saw a huge amount of will treacheries that are very, very scary. And we saw a huge amount of treacheries where the amount that you fail by matters. Yeah. So for situations like that, you really don't want to use Drawing Thin. Yeah, exactly. And I think that one of the one of the only like kind of tying uh, it into us talking about track shoes anyway is is the thing that you can do with track shoes is you can move to the new location, exhaust your track shoes as if you're going to be moving again, but double drawing thin it. So now the three agility test is now a seven agility test, right. and odds are you probably won't be able to make that unless you're Rita. And so you'll just kind of be stuck at the location you didn't really care about being stuck at anyway, and you still get two cards or, or four resources or any combination thereof. Yeah, you, you got to trigger it without spending an action, which is really good. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, similarly, yeah. so some of the times when I did manage to trigger it in uh, Circle Undone, the second playthrough when I was playing as Agnes, some of the encounter cards that go into your threat area and stay there, there's one of them that just makes you do a test, or a couple of them that makes you do a will test at the end of every turn. And the effect of that card was not so bad that I really needed to get rid of it. So even though as Agnes I could probably pass it, it was almost better to keep it around for a few turns and just use double drawing thin on that test and get like a free drawing thin activation. So you can do stuff like that. You can still find ways to use it. But while it's an excellent card in general, you really have to be very careful with it for Circle Undone. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, lastly, I think one of the one of the cycles of cards anyway that we wanted to talk about were... The cycle that came in the box itself, uh, which would be like Curiosity, Steadfast. Oh, the new skill cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are cards that benefited you if you were doing something that your faction wanted to do anyways. Mm. Like, so for example, uh, Curiosity would benefit you, give you more symbols, either um, agility. I'm, I'm sorry, not agility. Willpower. Will or intellect. Right. If you had four uh, or seven cards in hand and you'd gain one or two symbols of each respectively right and then same thing for steadfast but it was for willpower and for combat so all of these these cards were kind of well we didn't really know how we how they would fare except that we knew that able-bodied was still pretty terrible <laughs> the one that i thought would be really good uh was curiosity in that we had access to uh higher education seekers have access to cryptic research they have access to all this this crazy card draw but unfortunately, due to the tabooing of higher education, which is probably good for the health of the tabooed game, but I think that Curiosity got far less reasonable to, to keep in a deck anyways, um, because you can't use it as the fourth card. You know, like if it's the fourth card in your hand and you, and you commit it, suddenly it drops to one and one, and that's not that great. I think that's kind of true, but I think it's also the case that if you could play higher education, you didn't need the card as badly. And I think now that higher education is so expensive, there's almost a little bit more of a need for alternatives to boost. Like if you're trying to boost your intellect and your will, I mean, that's also, that's another thing that affects which of these cards are good and which are not. It's not just how you activate them, although that does matter. It's also what symbols they give you. So like steadfast is one that's really pretty good because it boosts the thing that guardians usually care about, which is strength. And also the thing that pretty much everybody has to care about, which is will. So yeah, and the circle ended on like part of the reason able-bodied isn't great is because it boosts strength and agility. There's not too many characters that really care about both of those. Like sometimes you do, but it's not quite as good as having like strength and will, for instance, for strength characters. I don't remember what we said about cunning, but 
I think at the time there wasn't as much big money stuff going on mm. and, and streetwise hadn't been uh <laughs> tabooed yet. <laughs> uh, so I think cuttings value has probably gone up if you're using taboo. I think so too. Cause you're still want to stockpile money and it gives you you know, the book and agility symbols. I tried it in a fin deck and I was not very happy with it, but I think it's probably better in Jenny or Preston, the kind of true money characters. It's probably pretty good. Yeah, exactly. I think so too. And uh, and prophecy, the the mystic oh. where it's it's a little bit different because it has question marks on it. <laughs> that was an extremely good card in our all mystics playthrough of the Forgotten Age, where we were just putting doom everywhere. And I think it is a pretty decent card just in general. But it just it does depend on it depends on the campaign and the scenarios. If you have like a few agendas with high doom threshold, then it's generally going to be quite good. And if you have a lot of fast agendas, then it's going to be less good. But it's it's at least worth considering when you're making a Mystic deck. Yeah, I agree with that too. Uh, any other any other cards that we should revisit and, and talk about? Or I, I know some of them, especially like some of the more recent cards, I still haven't really had a chance. Like I still really want to try Agency Backup, but I haven't had a chance to use that yet. So yeah, I mean, I think that the Circle Undone in general added a lot of a lot of depth for existing classes like survivors getting meat cleaver was fantastic like yeah. as as a weapon i a choice for them you mean zoe getting meat cleaver <laughs> <laughs> yeah zoe zoe and survivors getting meat cleaver was was a fantastic addition again we already talked about like track shoes i think survivors were a great benefit i think a, a lot of mystics were really happy to get sixth sense especially for trying to do like solo builds and stuff yeah, exactly. Deny existence is kind of like a mini ward sometimes too, so that's a good thing to prevent some some spooky stuff from happening. Yeah, De- definitely a lot of good player cards, and definitely kind of opening up the deck building space quite a bit in this in this cycle. So that was cool. Yeah. Uh, should we move on and maybe? I mean, in lieu of giving kind of like a numerical review or anything, should we do sort of like what we did for the Forgotten Age and just maybe each talk about something that we liked and and something that we didn't like about the campaign? Sounds good. Ben, is there is there something that you particularly liked about Circle Undone? Yeah, I I generally like the stories in these games. In this campaign, there was another one that I liked a lot. The more like I don't know, down to earth for Arkham theme of uh, ghosts and witches was a was a cool break. We got to spend most of it in Arkham, I think. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think almost yeah. all of it was in Arkham, or maybe like the outskirts of Arkham, rather than. In I mean, Mexico well, or... the the final scenario was Paris, in space, sort of. but that you know. I said things adjacent to Arkham. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, for the most part, it was it was at Arkham. It was good. I liked the the two story paths in this one. I mean, we've seen that like Forgotten Age had like kind of two branching paths, but this was another way they did it differently again. I liked that it, that you kind of like had to make a decision in each scenario, and you could also always had the opportunity to kind of switch sides for the most part mm. while in forgotten age if you switch sides it kind of just made it so you got like a a default middle ground path while in this you could totally switch sides and either be with the witches or with with the silver twilight lodge and it would give a a greater variety to the scenarios and stuff mm. even like at the very beginning of the campaign you had to make that one decision about whether to trust the soothsayer or not and that gives you either the soothsayer the soothsayer yeah <laughs> it gives you either the tablets or the elder things in your bag which uh, have drastically different effects throughout the in each scenario i think and so. often really really scary effects yeah yes they're they're definitely always scary but they're like usually scary in different ways so you can kind of compensate for them differently yeah and notably the uh the cultist path is the only one where you get like a lot of extra tokens i think i think you get like a couple cultist tokens every time you side with the brotherhood although again we didn't actually play through that whole path um <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah so i feel like we didn't really get to know any of the characters that we did the way we maybe sort of did with like ichitaka or alejandro in the previous campaign like there was carl sanford and kazaya i guess yeah but both of the leaders were kind of like a little more cryptic i mean they had yeah. An- anna was yeah. sort of a character too that popped up the soothsayer who was like oh let me read you some tarot cards mm-hmm. and i think one of the epilogues had her doing something although i didn't actually read that one yet um <laughs> Yeah, I think like th- kind of thematically, it, it was more based around you being alone, right? Like like being lost in the woods, even in just the first scenario where you're introduced to, you know, the the witch filled Arkham is kind of indicative of that. You know, like it, it really wants you to feel alone and like you're being chased by this really spooky ghost pointing a finger at you. Yeah, there's a good yeah, kind of a Blair Witch kind of a vibe. It was good. Then uh, I think that it was more vague about which side is like oh the good guy side, and really I think mm. neither one was. <laughs> um, which <laughs> yeah. Ichaka was sort of like the obvious one. Maybe just maybe we were just biased against Alejandro. I don't know. 
for <laughs> seeming seeming too obviously to be a villain. He was oh. definitely unlikable, but uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and ooh, I I think uh, I think Matt Newman has learned that if you're given the choice to burn something, the <laughs> it's too obvious to just burn it. So like we yeah. weren't allowed to burn the black book again. Uh, it was it was <laughs> so, a damn shame. Yeah, it was like either you take it or you leave it behind. I'm like, what? Yeah, we're gonna have to come up it. with some new heuristic strategies for uh, for dealing with <laughs> spooky written objects. I don't know. We'll have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, for me, I I definitely really like this campaign a lot. I would say my favorite part of it was the mechanical complexity of a lot of the scenarios. Several of the scenarios had really interesting hooks. There was um, in the clutches of chaos we discussed had this kind of pandemic thing going. Uh, for the greater good, you know, felt like doing a similar thing that we've seen before, where it was all about sort of managing doom on enemies, but it did that in, I think, a much smarter and much more interesting way. Um, I just felt like yeah. almost all of the scenarios that we played in this campaign really were just great from like a pure game design standpoint of we had interesting decisions to make. We were tested in various ways, some sometimes in ways that we hadn't really seen too much before in earlier campaigns. The difficulty felt really well tuned in most of these. The possible exception maybe is um, the Wages of Sin, the one with the, heret- with the heretics, which I, I think is one of the hardest scenarios that has been released so far. But that's only if you're trying to get all four of the heretics, which is really like going above and beyond. That's not supposed to be easy at all. That's supposed to be extremely hard. And I think it is extremely hard. Yeah, I like the balance of, of everything. I actually really like the balance of Wages of Sin. Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, like Midnight Masks, after like playing it once or twice, it feels like really easy to get all six. Yeah. Uh, Wages of Sin, I think, continues to be hard, and it continues to be hard in a way that's not like, oh, we just got some BS nonsense. It was, we were super unlucky. It's more like, oh, this is like really tightly designed. Yeah. There is a little bit of randomness, but yeah. I mean, it's not just that the time is very tight. It's also just that the encounter decks are too plural or both really nasty. It is very hard, but I agree. I, I liked it a lot. Like, I wouldn't want every scenario to be to feel like the odds are against you that much. But for, for some, um, that is really needed. And like someday, if we actually manage to get all four of the heretics in it, it will feel really great. So I just really liked the kind of pure gameplay design of most of these scenarios. There really, there weren't any duds. Like there were a couple that were maybe not quite as exciting as others, but there were a few really amazing ones and all of them were pretty good. So I was very happy with that. Don't forget about Brown Jenkins. Oh God. Oh, we can never forget forget him. (laughs) No, I'll never, I'll never be able to forget about that guy. But, and especially like, you know, not to, not to rag on the Forgotten Age, because there were definitely some good things about it. But I think one of our main complaints about that was that there was a lot of sort of uninteractable difficulty in terms of encounter cards that you couldn't really do a test to avoid. You couldn't really, there was a lot of stuff like that where it just felt like you didn't have options and you couldn't really strategize around it. This felt extremely different. This just felt like really you were rewarded for trying really hard, trying to make the best possible use out of every card in your deck, trying to come up with creative strategies. I, I just really like that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'd note that like, even on this, even like losing the scenarios for this one, cause we didn't, we didn't, we lose one or two of them on the, on the blind paint through. I think we did. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely, uh, definitely the one where Preston died. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think it did a good job of not being overly punishing when you like get the bad ending. Mm. Uh, for a lot of these it like i think in forgotten age some of them were like oh you failed the scenario do the scenario again <laughs> or you just die <laughs> they felt very brutal there which maybe that was a bit of the theme there but i think i like yeah. this better where it would continue the story uh but maybe like the, it was more the story aspect went downhill rather than the next scenario had some horrible penalty on you or not for the most part yeah definitely dane was there what was your favorite part of the of the circle undone well, I think kind of like you were mentioning, the, the the mechanical part of the scenarios in the way that they tie into the theme of the uh, Circle Undone was really, I think, well done. Namely, the encounter interactions having to do with, like, the witches milling the encounter deck and in the Wages of Sin, how you have two encounter decks. You have the Spectral one, which is definitely mega spooky, and then you have the, the regular one, which is still really brutal. And... The way that the witches uh, interact with their own hexes is kind of cool. Like, they kind of hex you, and then if you dodge a witch somewhere and you're on their location, you can kind of get rid of their hex that way. The way that there were different sets, depending on if you go with the Silver Twilight Lodge or if you go to the the witches, they put a lot of thought into... If you're going with the, the cultists, you have to fight the witches and you have to deal with these brutal hexes and things. If you go with the witches... You have to deal with a lot of doom, like just direct doom-based things with how horrible these cultist guys are. 
I thought that that was just very well done and translated really well. Yeah, that's like one thing that's really amazing is when sort of like traits and uh, sort of story elements to some of these cards or some of these enemies have like a really strong connection with a, with a mechanical thing. Like, oh, this this card feels like a witch because it cares about hex treacheries and it mills the encounter deck. This feels like a cultist because it messes with doom. Like that's that's kind of what a cultist is. Is it's like an enemy that either puts doom on itself or does something similar to that. That's really neat when we kind of like develop those identities for these different types of antagonists. Yeah, I think that the the cooler thing too, I mean, the entire time the witches had a link to their ancestry, right? Like they had, especially in the Wages of Sin, where you had to uh, deal with these revenants that are not necessarily even malicious, right? They're right. they're dealing, you're kind of helping them absolve their pasts and these, you know, the wages of their sins, so to speak. But even some of the encounters or the the enemies that you're dealing with deal directly with that. Like, there's one witch that gets stronger the more of her sisters are in the graveyard or, or the, the discard pile, you know what I mean? So, like, that theme is just really well fleshed out. Yeah, definitely. But <laughs> there were some things we all didn't like about the uh, the, the Circle Undone. There weren't that many, I think. I think definitely the good outweighed the bad. It's kind of it's, it's hard to come up with anything that we, like, seriously disliked. Like, most of it I think we, we liked. Yeah, exactly. But I think that, uh, for me... The necessity to have a higher will mm. was the biggest turnoff for me. Just the just the mere fact that I think the average of the will tests, and I'm sure somebody's done like an an actual like analysis of all of the cards, was like four or five. I think that it definitely felt that way. You could almost like scale. It could have just said, "Oh, for the circle undone, treat every investigator's will as if it's one less than it actually is," because that's absolutely how it felt. Investigators with three felt like they were at two. Investigators with two or one, we're just going to get brutalized by like hexes. Compared and... to the earlier campaigns. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It was a little bit like uh, Knight of the Zealot in that regard, right? Like that's what <laughs> gave willpower. A necessity of willpower is such a powerful reputation was just crushing will willpower tests. Yeah, absolutely. And even then, the, what is it, Rotting Remains? Is that the one where you have to do a will test and you take a horror for yeah. every point you fail by? I mean, that's like a base of three. The Circle Undone version of that is like a base of three, but then it gets worse according to something. Like it's... Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, like, the part that was kind of upsetting to me is that it almost, like, if if you're trying to do really well anyways, I think that it almost completely counts out some investigators just in that, like, you know, like, Finn or Skids or anybody anybody that you want to bring in this in this way is just going to have a really tough time dealing with these will tests because there are, like, it's, I would imagine it's, like, 85-90% will tests. And it, it, it makes things difficult for, like, survivors because, as we mentioned earlier, this is a very rough campaign to do the oh it's okay i'll fail but it will still be fine strategy right like a lot of this stuff failing was just really bad and uh you know a lot of rogues just have like pretty bad base will that's just really not where you want to be for this yeah i think that it does favor the mystics in the way that they usually have a lot of will uh, except for diana <laughs> whoa, whoa but i think that <laughs> i i think that in addition to that, there are there are encounter cards and like ghosts and things that can only be affected by relics or spells and and things like that. So it kind of almost feels like I mean it being a witch infested sort of magic infused <laughs> campaign, you really want to to kind of at least get one mystic in there. Well, I mean the card pool of investigators is big enough now that like I think it's okay if some campaigns are like easier with certain combos. Uh, and then if you want to challenge yourself, you're like, oh, I'll go in there with a lower willpower and see if I can compensate for it. Yeah, that's true. But I, I think this campaign also showed like how powerful canceling effects are, and like some of the player cards supported that. Yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah. Even with Diana, her willpower is bad, but like she wants to have those cancel cards, and there's a lot of stuff for her to cancel <laughs> in some of these encounter decks. That is true. So that is very true. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely agree with you, Dan. It, it really, uh, it was a huge just pivot towards willpower, not just being as it usually is the most important thing for dealing with treacheries but being almost the only thing that interacted with uh, treacheries and just the the baseline difficulty of those will tests being very high it's not a complete downside for me because on one level i i kind of think it's cool if the different campaigns encourage you to play different types of, of decks and different characters like it's cool to have like oh this campaign maybe it's like zoe is actually sort of the best guardian for instance she's not it's still mark but like Aww. maybe it's like oh you know you know this campaign it gives characters that have high will a chance to shine where maybe except mark is still the best where maybe in other <laughs> in other campaigns they would be overshadowed by the kind of like baseline great characters yeah so like wendy i think is probably very good in circle and done because she has four will that's pretty good 
She is. She's extremely good. So in that sense, like for me, it's not a, a total downside, but I agree. It is a little bit disappointing where you feel like, well, I wanted to play this deck, but we're doing Circle Undone. I'd better pick something that has at least like four will if possible, because otherwise it's just going to feel bad. I'm just going to be basically wrecked by encounter cards for the whole campaign. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like Unless I'm to the point where the lead in to this, the whole campaign was Alter Fate. Right, like that came out in the last pack of the Forgotten Age. Has the tower on it? That's like Matt Newman saying right there. You guys are gonna need this. You know what I mean? Like we we there's so much stuff that just gets stuck to you that you need to alter fate off. And and in other campaigns, it's not even that great. And it's unfortunate because that alter fate card it it, it does help, but it's pretty narrow and it costs XP. It's kind of too bad that maybe we didn't get a couple of cheaper cards that were less of a downside to put in your deck that could help deal with some of this stuff because that might have helped a lot but like i said it's still fun it just sort of limits what type of characters you want to bring in if you want to have a kind of a balanced time and just not be totally miserable yeah exactly yeah um so that i guess that's sort of a that's sort of maybe dane's dislike thing about the scenario ben can you think of anything about the campaign that you didn't really like um one thing i definitely noticed was it felt like a certain combos of encounter sets were used a lot like more than four or five times in each one and it was always like it didn't they didn't get mixed up as much like it was like oh we're fighting the witches there's the witches and the hexes and Gannett's coven's in there or and then it's like the witches from the, or sorcery from the base set or something it felt like we always had the same combo of different sets and it wasn't mixed up as much maybe i'm totally wrong on that but it did feel like uh, oh this is a witch's scenario so these are all the encounter cards we have and there's like a couple scenario specific ones or oh this is a ghost scenario so here's all the encounter cards or here's a twilight twilight lodge so here's all the cultists or whatever and it was like kind of those three sets and each scenario had like a couple cards added yeah so i thought that was a bit of a downside but i did like the theme of all of them yeah i can't say i really noticed but i'll I'll definitely take your word for it because i think you pay more attention to that stuff one thing that i have noticed though is that it seems like since the early days of the game if you go back and look at dunwich most of the dunwich scenarios are using a lot of core set encounter cards and then maybe some dunwich encounter cards kind of added to the mix but yeah. I think as we've gone on, like you saw less and less of that in Forgotten Age and even less of it here, like Forgotten Age and even to a greater extent Circle Undone, the encounter decks are largely made up of cards from this campaign, maybe with just a few from the core set added for flavor. So on the one hand, I think that does make them feel a little bit more repetitive because you're seeing the same cards more often. But it's also cool because I would rather see Circle Undone encounter cards more rather than the same core set encounter cards that we see in every campaign. Right? Yeah, it's true. And there's only so many uh, you know, cards that can fit in the boxes slash the packs. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that like what you were saying before, the theme of them is pretty cool. Like getting a Fate of All Fools stitched to your face and then having people just having, you know, just really bad luck like in over the course of the scenario in that your your comrades are drawing more fate of all fools and having to choose what to do to you is is pretty bad but it's also fun it's a cool decision to make yeah you know, like yeah and really cool art if anybody can has to deal damage to me i definitely have a deny existence you know yeah. <laughs> or it's the last turn it's like uh, i don't care if it's doom or damage i pick damage but then uh that person only had one health left oops that might have happened <laughs> yeah, to, one of my yeah. Health yeah. <laughs> to me oh wow it's <laughs> uh, some rough periling over there for sure <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, I think, uh, and for me, it's definitely, it's it's sort of, we're really like picking nits here. It's really hard because I think for the most part, we really like this. But if I have to pick something that was a little bit disappointing, I think that the prologue with um, the temporary investigators, you get the, the kind of new investigators that are only meant to be played in that specific prologue. It was kind of a neat idea. I feel like it just didn't really affect the campaign a whole lot. They came, they showed up again in Union Dissolution, and we basically forgot to talk about it because it just didn't really, <laughs> feel, it didn't really feel like a major part of the scenario. So, oh yeah, and and I'm I'm not saying it was bad. Like it was still a cool idea and it was kind of neat. But it's just, I mean, if you're thinking of this from a kind of a pure efficiency standpoint of like, was it worth putting those uh, four or however many cards in the box when those could have been like four different encounter cards? you know, to make the encounter decks feel more varied or something like that. I guess just given that they were going to to put them in the campaign, I wish that they had sort of been a little bit more of an impact on it. But again, this is like really searching very hard for anything to complain about. <laughs> I wish it was more impactful just because uh, replaying the prologue scenario, I think 
uh, will get old much faster than replaying these other scenarios, just because you're yeah, yeah you sure, only have so many investigators. They have the same set of cards every time. Yeah, yeah. I think what they one thing that might have been cool is if they were able to like inject each one kind of in a similar way to the dinner party in Carcosa, where you have all these enemies showing up every every step of the way. Yeah. What What would have been cool is if they they had the opportunity. They gave the opportunity to put. Um, you know, like Penny, for example, put c- comes to this secret undone or the the secret name rather, and so on. Like it, it might have been cooler that way, or they just didn't really have any involvement. That would have been cool. Yeah, or even if um, you know, you do so the ones that kind of make it out okay can join your deck as allies. Even if that had happened earlier, so that you kind of get to have more of a relationship with them over the course of the campaign, rather than getting them at the end of the sixth scenario and really only having them in your deck for two. Yeah. Even that might have helped a lot, I think. And even getting them in your deck is like, you only get them in your deck if they survive long enough and die a certain way in the prologue, which you is definitely not apparent. in, uh, in At first in the prologue, that's how you do it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think I think when we did the prologue the first time, we like got all the clues and they were like, had a turn or two. I was like, uh, we have the clues. I guess let's just kill ourselves. <laughs> I think is what we did, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, and yeah. then it turns out like, oh, I guess we were supposed to try to survive another three rounds, but it yeah, I don't know. It didn't seem like that was going to be that exciting. So, so. And it, it's too bad because having like cool, strong allies join your deck is a way to kind of make the campaign feel interesting and different. Like when you think of Dunwich, you think of like Francis Morgan and, and the, like the cool allies you can get that hang around in your deck or like Ichtaka in, in Forgotten Age. Yeah, Rice. And, yeah. And so it's just kind of too bad that there wasn't something like that. But, you know, still not not a huge problem or anything. Yeah, they are very strong, though, when you do get yeah, them. Yeah, they're pretty good. If you do get them. Yeah, for sure. So... We've talked about some things that we like and dislike. Kind of overall, if we're going to try to boil it down to our overall impressions of the campaign, you know, where we would put it amongst the the campaigns that have been released so far, and and what are like the real like highlights and lowlights? What what are you guys thinking? What what do we think about the circle undone? I think you went over it already, but uh, mechanics and like design for all the scenarios was very tight. I don't think there was any like duds. They were all at least like pretty solid, enjoyable to play through, and there were some that were like stuck out a lot. Uh, I don't know. We didn't mention this one, but especially Secret Name with those rats. Yes. Uh, using, <laughs> the, using the rat deck and the horrible art. Horrible as it's scary. <laughs> and the story, you you talked about this. The story was very well executed and, and definitely the kind of like branching structure was really cool. I think that, uh, at least for me, I don't know if this had any kind of single like amazing story hook that was as cool as the kind of unreliable narrator stuff in Carcosa. Like that's still kind of the high watermark for me. Yeah, Sam. But nevertheless, like the story was very well done in this for sure. Yeah, I mean, I also think they, they there was a considerable improvement from from how the story was tackled in again, not to rag on the <laughs> Forgotten Age, but you know where you have like interlude forty seven. You know, in in the Forgotten Age, you have a lot of interludes and you have a lot of options, but it's not presented in a way where it just kind of takes forever and and there's not really a lot of you know tangible mechanics that don't relate to it you know in this there, there's a lot of grounded mechanics that you can really feel it wasn't as much like check the campaign log for eight different things each of which will do a horrible thing if it's written <laughs> down in the campaign log unless you have chalk penguins steal all of your <laughs> I mean, food no. i like <laughs> i like i definitely like the story in this one mostly because i had an idea of what was going on for the most part you know we, we, we didn't we weren't sure to trust <laughs> but like forgotten age i had no idea why we were doing stuff most of the time until like <laughs> the fifth scenario i was like oh everybody uh, those guys are yithians that's why they're here or whatever those are snakes you know so yeah uh, yeah yeah but yeah i thought the story was pretty strong yeah i thought that the rich theme and the ability to evoke the the really gritty rich wit and dark ghost haunted arkham was really great it kind of set it apart from like the midnight masks and you know where you're kind of running around the normal streets you're running around and it is dark, man. There, there is like we're going to like Hangman's Hill, where there, there's like a lot of harbored hatred for a lot of different things in a lot of ways. People are committing suicide at the end. It's horrible. It's dark, and it's like one a.m. and it's creepy as hell. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like the weird stuff you find on the net when you're when you're surfing about to go to sleep. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. I liked the subtle, uh, like the music was always sort of present in the background in a lot of the scenarios, and it's like, oh, it's uh, the yeah. music of Azazoth, and it's like keeping him asleep or whatever. And I think, like, as as kind of like a bottom line, if we were going to start another campaign right now, the one that I would be most excited to play again is absolutely the Circle Undone. Yeah. Same. So, like, maybe maybe that's partly because of the novelty and because we haven't played through it as much. But I had a great time both of our playthroughs, and I'm very excited to play it again. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the Circle Undone re- redo. Yeah, part the, two. the Circle Redo. Electric Boogaloo. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, guys, that wraps up our thoughts on The Circle Undone. As always, let us know what you guys think by commenting wherever you listen to podcasts or sending us an email at miskatonicuniversityradio at gmail.com. If we do get enough responses, we'll be doing a mailbag episode where we discuss your thoughts and answer some of your questions. Questions like, do you guys like the idea of playing jazz flute for Azathoth at the end of time? Or is your cat excited about the Dream Eaters? Or, uh, what is Dane's favorite breakfast cereal? <laughs> or, uh, what noise does Ben make if you pick up one of his cards with a little bit of pizza grease on your fingers? Uh, you know, the, these are all... <laughs> see, yeah, actually, well, okay, now you don't need to ask that one, because we pretty much just heard it. But my point is, there's a lot of great questions. All questions worth asking. And we will only hear from you if you do send them to Radio at gmail.com. So do it. Or post on the Reddit or Facebook. <laughs> we read those too. <laughs> yeah. You can try tweeting us, but I don't think we have a Twitter. Uh, um. your, your tweet will be thrown into oblivion with the rest of this campaign. <laughs> but anyways, guys, again, thanks for listening, and we will see you next episode. Bye. Bye. questions worth asking and we won't know unless you send your emails to miskatonic university unless we don't hear from you at miskatonic university radio uh, at gmail.com unless, we don't, so hear unless we don't hear from you <laughs> try again dade try again <laughs>